welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. So last week we looked at the idea of the resurrection of our bodies. We looked at the idea that in heaven, uh, or the new earth as it's probably better called, that we will have physical bodies and that our lives... Um, will not just be sort of spirity and ethereal, we won't sort of be see-through or gossamer, that we will be real, tangible humans. Uh, this week we're sort of going in kind of as a part two of that. The Creed says not only do we believe in the resurrection of the body, but it also says that we believe in life everlasting. Uh, Bertrand Russell is a famous atheist, and when he was uh, talking to people one day, he was talking about this idea, uh, the idea of eternal life or everlasting life. And he said that if he was being honest, the idea of everlasting life uh, terrified him, not because of what he believed about it. He said the idea of everlasting life terrified him because that is a really, really long time. No matter what you are doing, no matter, no matter if it's blissful or terrible, for something to go on forever, when we begin to think about it, does bring a little bit of terror to our minds, doesn't it? We're going to be living a life everlasting. In the words of Sandlot, forever. Forever. You see, part of the trouble is is that you and I uh, cannot imagine what heaven is like. We can't imagine what heaven is like, and it's not because we haven't tried, but rather because in our culture we have sort of plastered over the heavens, and the only thing that we can really imagine are things that we can see and things that we can experience. We can't imagine things that we have never experienced. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, the History Channel um, is no longer that much about history, right? You, got, you guys have seen the programming list on the History Channel, and I want to point out two shows. I know one of them's on the History Channel. I can't think of where the other one's went. I want to talk about Ancient Aliens <laughs> and Ghost Hunters, right? Ancient Aliens is the show, and the host um, looks like he is always... Um, Uh, in possession of some illegal materials. And he goes through and he lays out sort of these sort of mysteries that we don't know, like how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? How How did all this other stuff happen? And inevitably the plot line of the episode, about halfway through after he sort of lays out this ancient mystery, he says, how did this happen? They did. They couldn't do this. I, I know what it is. Aliens. And then goes on to explain how he thinks aliens built the pyramids, aliens dug the Suez Canal, aliens are the explanation to all of life's problems. Even if you've never seen this show, you've probably seen the image of this guy with his hair sort of all wacky, and he's sort of going like this, and he's explaining something with a really bad... That's the alien guy. The same thing happens with uh, sort of ghost hunters. Right, which is a terrible uh, Ghostbusters parody where they go around with these sort of um, cameras that are in low light and no light, and they, they're looking around for ghosts. And we look at those shows, and we go, that's crazy. Right? We look at the guy that tries to explain the pyramids as 
aliens and say, that's crazy. And let's be real honest. It's because it is. Right? It's crazy to think that the aliens uh, built the pyramids. And yet, what this shows us about ourselves, our sort of ability to look at those shows and laugh, to take them as comedy and not documentary, is that we don't have a concept of the supernatural. Any supernatural explanation that you and I hear for anything immediately makes us a little cautious at best. At worst, we sort of look at anything that's supernatural and go, well, yeah, no, not so much. And this is true for us, whether we are a Christian or not. This is not just people who sort of uh, follow the scientific method to the T and say there's, there's no such thing as unexplainable phenomena, everything is explainable through science. That's fine, they do believe that. But we as Christians do the same thing. And we as, as Christians in churches like City Church may be the worst, right? I mean, I look around this room and the number of sort of college-educated folks per capita is uh, a little bit more than St. Petersburg. The number of sort of intellectually curious people is higher than average. And yet at the same time, any time that we see anything that reeks of the supernatural, we question And at the same time, when we begin to think about our lives and think about what might come next, we have at the same time this ache. This ache, this sort of thing deep down inside of us that says, I was, I was made for more. I was made for more than this. Whatever it is that's going on in my life, something is going on and I was made for more than this life. This is why every culture across the world and across time has some explanation for what happens to you after you die. Whether that is sort of reincarnation, whether that is heaven or some concept of heaven, whatever it is, every culture has this idea of what happens to you after you die. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis, the famous author, said uh, that if I have a desire for a world that I can't quench with anything in this world, the only explanation I can find is that I was made for another world. And so where we find ourselves, whether we're a Christian or not this morning, is holding on to these two sort of ideas at the same time. On the one hand, we struggle to accept anything that's supernatural. But on the other hand, we ache and pine for another world. A world that is just. A world where love is shown. A world where there is not emptiness and sadness, but there is fullness and joy. And we have these echoes of that world in our heart that we can't shake. And so we're caught in between these two things. And so as Christians, what happens for many of us is that we often err on the side that we don't know really what's going on. We kind of think of heaven and we go, you know, that's, that's something that is mysterious. That's something that's intangible. That's something that I can't quite figure out. And so we ignore it. And in ignoring it, what we end up doing is beginning to live like it doesn't exist. 
So what I want to do this morning is show you uh, one of the clearest pictures the Bible gives us of what life is going to be like after this life ends. And I want to read that and show how that makes sense to us here in St. Petersburg this morning. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 21. In just a second, I'm going to read the first eight verses, and I'm going to ask you to stand uh, and listen along with me. So if you would stand up, and let's read Revelation 21. You can follow along uh, in your Bibles if you have an app. Uh, It'll also be on the screen. This is what St. John said. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So while on some ways we think of the idea of heaven as being somewhat inscrutable, somewhat ununderstandable, we come to this passage and we see a number of things about heaven. We begin to get a picture that St. John gives us of what heaven is going to be like. And as we read through it, some of the things are things that we are familiar with. The first thing that we see is that like the 80's song, heaven is a place on earth. See, for most of us, one of our our bad ideas about heaven is that it's going to be somewhere in the sky. That it's going to be somewhere out there. This would be a much better example if we didn't have eight-foot drop ceilings, right? (laughs) The idea of space and awareness is not quite communicated by soundproof tiles, right? And yet, at the same time, when we think of heaven, we think of it as being elsewhere and not here. And yet, as we read through this passage, what's one of the things that we see? Where is the New Jerusalem? Is the New Jerusalem somewhere else? No. The New Jerusalem comes from heaven down onto earth. And the idea that St. John is giving us is this, that heaven will not be some place, like we spoke about last week, where we are floating around on clouds with wings and harps, and wishing we had a magazine, but rather that heaven will be a place here on earth. 
that it will be the new earth. In fact, uh, as John sort of lays out this picture of heaven, the picture that he gives us is actually pointing us back to Genesis. It's pointing us back to the garden. The best picture we have of where we will spend eternity is not in the clouds, but rather in the garden. Where God is with us. Where we experience the very presence of God. And where we have work. You see, you and I are going to have jobs in heaven. We're going to have things to do. We're going to use the gifts that God has given us in this lifetime to be a part of the new earth. And so we see that the new earth is where we're going to spend eternity, but not just that it's a glorified, that it's back to the garden, that it's back to the way that we were made to be, but it's a place with no pain and no shame. You see, for many of us, this might be the thing about heaven that we long for the most. Whether it's because of physical pain or emotional pain, the idea that there is a place where that is wiped away, where the tears are gone, where the shame for what we've done and what's been done to us is wrapped up and pushed away. You see, for some of us, That's an amazing thing. And so we see that heaven is a place on earth. Heaven is a place without pain or shame. But we also see that heaven is a place for the thirsty. John says that heaven is a place set aside for those who thirst. And when he says this, this is John who walked with Jesus throughout his life. He's hearkening back to the Beatitudes. And what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, in order for us to hunger and thirst after righteousness, what it says is that we don't have it in and of ourselves. Are you thirsty when you are hydrated? No. When you are hydrated, your thirst isn't there. Now, most of us all, especially because we live in Florida, live in a constant state of dehydration, right? It's not, are you dehydrated? It's, "Eh, where are you at on the dehydration scale today, right? Either I'm dying of thirst or I'm really thirsty. Those are our basically two options as Floridians. And what does thirst do? Thirst reminds us that we need to drink water. When John says that heaven is the thirst. Uh, Heaven is a place for the thirsty, where their thirst is quenched with the springs of the water of life. What he's reminding us is that we do not have the righteousness inside of us in order for, for heaven to be ours. You see, you and I can't gin up enough righteousness to deserve heaven. And this is hard for some of us. Because some of us look at our lives and go, yeah, I, I know I'm not perfect, but on the deserving heaven or not deserving heaven scale, I kind of deserve it. God, have you seen me? Look at my spiritual resume, God. I've done a lot of things right. Look how much, and we, and we, we couch this in really good spiritual language. Look, look how much you've done through me, Jesus. 
We don't say, look how much I've done for you. We know. We're, we know better than that. We say, look how much, Jesus, you've done through me. Now, wouldn't you agree that I deserve heaven? And when Jesus says that heaven is for the thirsty, what he's doing is he is critiquing our self-righteousness. He's critiquing those of us who think that we have it all together enough to deserve heaven. He's coming to us and saying, no, you don't actually. You may not think that you're dehydrated, but you are. You may not think that you are in need of my grace to get you into heaven, but you are. You see, self-righteousness sneaks into our hearts in all sorts of ways. And when it does, it is an infectious disease that puffs us up and tells us, well, I've got my stuff together. Surely, if anybody ever deserved heaven, it was me. And what's interesting is the way that this self-righteousness begins to play out in what we believe about eternity. Because when I'm being self-righteous, when I am thinking that I've got my stuff together, that I am doing all the things right, so I deserve heaven, what do I begin to think about all the people who are less good than I am? What do I begin to think about all the people whose sins are more obvious than my own? You see, what happens is, when we are self-righteous, when we think that we deserve heaven, one of the things that we do is we begin to weaponize the doctrine of eternity. We begin to weaponize the idea that there is a heaven and a hell. And this has been something that we, as the church in America, have been very guilty of in the past 150 years. We have taken the ideas of heaven and hell and used them aggressively to promote guilt in others. We have used these ideas to say, me and my friends whose sins are less obvious or whose sins are more acceptable are okay, and you and your friends whose sins are more obvious are not okay. And in our self-righteousness, we begin to become judge and jury of others. Think about the last time you heard some gossip around the water cooler. And maybe, maybe you were talking to the one other Christian in your office. And you heard about what so-and-so did last weekend. Does your heart immediately go to, well, I know what's going to happen to them. It's because you're not thirsty. It's because I'm not thirsty. It's because I'm trusting in my own righteousness. And so on the one hand, those of us who are self-righteous have been guilty of weaponizing the idea of hell. The other side of things is that some of us who are not Christians have not given thought to what it might mean if that's true. You see, just because people have misused an idea 
doesn't mean that that idea is wrong. Just because Christians have been guilty of, of weaponizing the concept of hell doesn't mean that hell doesn't exist. You see, our, our tendency is to sway and far in the other direction. Because we've been very poor in our understanding, in our, in our treatment of the idea of hell, our response is to just ignore it as Christians. But as non-Christians, it begs a question. Because when you look at that list at the end of our passage, where he begins to lay out who the lake of fire is for, what we see is all of us, Christian or not, can find ourselves in that list. You see, all of us stand equally condemned by that list as liars, as idolaters, as people who have hated others, and the list goes on. You see, what that list reminds us is that us being a part of eternal life is not dependent on how good or bad we have performed. We need someone else to do it for us. And this passage reminds us of that. It says that He, Jesus, is the one who has conquered. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. So for those of us who are God's children, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who say, yes, on my own, I am a lying murderous idolater. I am far more concerned about what other people think of me than I am what God thinks of me. And so I lie. So I I make it look like... So I've got stories that inflate my image that I can tell you, right? You know your party story that's 60% true. That when you're around the right people and you need to show that you, you know, oh no, no, I'm, I have credibility, here's my story that gives me credibility. And we all know that we have those stories that are only about 60% true. We all know that we will lie to protect ourselves from the embarrassment of what we've done. It's been done to us. We are quick to hate others. But Jesus says, I have overcome this. My people are those not who are perfect, but who are thirsty, who are seeking after my sort of righteousness. And it's interesting that the way that it sort of goes about this is it uses wedding language. This passage was filled with the idea and the sort of language around weddings. And as a pastor, weddings are some of my favorite things to do. Besides maybe baptisms, weddings are the best. Because, because I get to see love in, in, in all of its glory. I mean, I get, to see, I get to see grown men, big men, men, men with mohawks, <laughs> true story, this happened two weeks ago, cry when they see their bride. I get to see strong women weep when they see their groom. You see, there, there, is, there is nothing better than that moment, especially in a big church wedding, where you sort of have the classic back doors, and all of the bridesmaids come forward, and the groom is standing there, and those back doors open, and there's 
the bride. And I'll tell you what, 90% of the time, when those doors open, that dude's a puddle. Right? Why? Guys who have been married, right? Why did you turn into a puddle? Because that's your bride. You love her. And what happens? What's happening in those moments before those doors open, right? The, the bride is like fixing her dress, you know what I mean? Like, like looking in the mirror, is all of my makeup okay? Is everything going right? And then what happens as soon as those doors open? Is she thinking any more about her dress, her makeup, her hair, her flowers? No. It's gone. Why? Because she sees her groom. You'd be amazed how much tunnel vision you get to see. I mean, all, all the people on the aisles, hey, hey, what's up? Oh, you look beautiful, right? Target fixed, right? What's interesting is Jesus is giving us this exact analogy for how much he loves us. The song we sang, uh, the hymn a few minutes ago, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, uh, brings out an interesting point that I, that I want to point out. It says this, that uh, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. That's true, right? When she, when she gets through those doors, she is no longer worried about her dress. Why? Because the object of her affection is, no, is not her dress, it's her groom. And what we see in this is the subtle ways that you and I, especially those of us who believe in heaven, are actually a little bit idolatrous. Christian, when you think about heaven, what excites you the most? When you think about heaven, are you excited for an eternal weekend? To be done with work. To, to be in a life without Mondays. I am. Christian, when you think about heaven, are you excited about pleasure forevermore? When you think about heaven, are you excited about the rewards that you think that you deserve that you're going to get there? probably say yes to all of these above. I think you probably could too. When we do that, when we look forward to heaven, and the greatest joy that we are excited for in heaven is not Jesus himself, we have a view of heaven that is functionally idolatry. Will we receive rest in heaven? Yes. Will we receive pleasure also, yes. Will Jesus richly reward us? Also, again, yes. Is that the point? No. Does the bride take hours to pick out her dress? Does she pay all sorts of money to get her hair and makeup done? Yes. Is the wedding about the dress and the hair and the makeup? No. 
And if we saw, if, if you went to a wedding where the bride was more consumed with her dress and her makeup and her hair than she was the groom, what would you think? That's weird. I don't think that one's going to last. <laughs> I can already see the signs of it. Right? You, you, would, you would know that that was off. Whenever we look towards heaven and look at anything else that He gives us besides Himself, we are idolatrous. We are worshiping a God of our own making. Which is fascinating, because guess what shows up on that list at the end of the part of the book that we read today? You see, when we think about heaven, which we don't do very often, we sort of write it off, or we begin to think about all the ways that God is just going to give us what we want. Where He becomes just a cosmic Coke machine where he is just giving us the things that we want as we tell him to. What happens is, even those of us who are Christians begin to have an idolatrous view of heaven. But the good news is that the groom has already set his love on us. Even though we are all finicky brides looking at the dress, looking forward to the meal afterwards, looking to all the other things, our groom has given his life up for us. You see, exactly what the cross was, was taking that lake of fire, that second death, as St. John calls it in this passage, for his people. Jesus took all of our idolatry, all of our lying, all of our fill-in-the-blanks with your personal stuff, and took that on Himself so that you and I might be given His righteousness. So that our thirst might be quenched not by the works of our hands, not by how good we can be this week, but our thirst is quenched by the wine that is Jesus' blood. And not only that, but He gives us a new life. He rose from the dead and says, just as we talked about last week, that because He rose from the dead, so will we. You know, it's interesting. Right in the middle of this passage, right in the heart of it, God says something really interesting. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, those of you who know me well, know that I'm terrible at math. Like, even simple math will throw me off in a hurry. But I'm pretty decent at English. And I know something about the phrase, I am making all things new. It's not just something that's going to happen in the future, is it? If it was, he would say, I will make all things new. No. What does God say? I am making. I am at work right now making all things new. And it's really interesting that we lose something uh, when we look at the words everlasting life. Because we just think that means something that's way far off in the future. When what John's saying is that I will give you the good life of the ages. 
that I'm going to give you the good life of the ages. And what's true about that phrase, what's true about the idea that I'm making all things new, is that because Jesus rose from the dead, our eternal life has already started. Church, you have already begun to live your life of the ages. And so what that means is that it should change the way that we look at everything we do. Because you, church, right now are a part of God making all things new. You're about Him making this world into the world that is to come. About making it more whole, more beautiful, more just, and more loving. So whatever your job is, whatever vocation God has called you to, whether it's staying at home with your children, or whether it is working in an office, working with your hands, whatever it is you do, God is saying that you are called to make the world more whole, more beautiful, more loving, more just. And that's not something that you get to do somewhere out there, somewhere off into the future. It's something that begins now. And the other thing that it means is that we get to invite other people into this idea. Other people into this faith that God will take away our shame, that God will change us, that God will forgive us. And we get to do that by sharing our faith with others. The life of the ages, church, has started now. And Jesus calls us to begin to live it. May we do that this week.